Welcome to Cato Audio for June 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, columnist John Tierney explains the value of willpower. Emma Ashford probes American policy in Syria. Noreen Shaw discusses some problems inside the FBI. And Johan Norberg discusses energy and the poor. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The arrest and questionable death of Freddie Gray while in police custody, followed by riots in Baltimore and, of course, the spate of questionable shootings by police in recent weeks are bringing police misconduct under the microscope again, uh, perhaps to stay. Here to discuss these issues with me today, Adam Bates, policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and Tim Lynch, director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let, let's start with uh, Freddie Gray because that is uh, what is, I think, most on the minds of people. Uh, this is it became a national story when there were uh, riots in Baltimore. It seems a pretty intractable set of positions with uh, police. Uh, I, I think in, in this case in particular, hiding behind the the generous protections that they are afforded. Uh, and uh, a community that is suffered uh, unduly for a very long period of time under uh, police misconduct that until fairly recently uh, was largely unreported or when reported uh, dealt with in a less than satisfactory manner. Uh, yeah, I would say, uh, and it's it's not just up until recently, uh, we, we still have a problem uh, in Baltimore and, and elsewhere in the country with uh, unreported uh, police brutality, uh, a lack of transparency with uh, the methods police use to, to police communities, and, and a lack of accountability when uh, abuses are alleged. It seems very interesting that the media, since the Michael Brown shooting last year in Ferguson, they do seem to be paying more attention to these incidents going on around the country. So that's put pressure on state and local officials to do more serious investigations. And uh, with the protests in Baltimore, the state's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, stepped up and did a thorough, aggressive, independent investigation and brought very serious charges against the officers involved. We probably would not have seen that uh, a year ago. All right. So what, what does that mean? Do you, you suspect that this is, I mean, folks here at the Cato Institute, Tim in particular, have been talking about these kinds of issues for a very long time. It, does, it seems like perhaps there is this turning point now where this is just not going to go away and any given uh, alleged allegation of police misconduct, particularly with the help of video, is, uh, is national news. Well, it is important that there, these incidents are getting more attention, but we have to follow through with this to make sure that policies and laws are changed so that officers are held accountable uh, when they do break the law. And to see changes in the way in which police officers uh, and the tactics that they use in these minority neighborhoods are changed. Uh, right now, it's getting attention. Uh, but we have to follow through and make sure policies are changed. 
there's so much noise uh, about this right now, and and you're right with the ubiquity of of cameras and smartphones and the ability of of people to record what goes on uh, in their lives. Uh, it does seem like there's been uh, an increase in uh, in incidents and in uh, people's uh, reactions uh, to these incidents. Uh, but yes, the, the the most important thing is. A, I, A, identifying these incidents when they happen, but also, uh, like Tim said, actually following through, uh, both with uh, actual efforts to hold officers accountable, uh, which too often can, can peter out uh, at after the initial stage in the process, uh, and also with actual policy changes that, that uh, prevent these things from happening in the first place. Now, one thing I've been saying is that, you know, if you want to see small improvements, uh, go ahead with the body camera idea. Uh, or President Obama, you know, has proposed his uh, brother's keeper initiative with mentoring. I mean, those things will give you some small improvements in in policing, but there's so much more that needs to be done. Um, you know, if, if, you know, stop and frisk tactics have been used in many of our major metropolitan areas, and that is one of these wrongheaded policies that treats minority men like second-class citizens. And unless a policy like that is changed, uh, you're going to s continue to see confrontations between the police and this festering resentment in these minority neighborhoods. Uh, it's not going to go away until policies like that are reversed. All right. So if we're uh, here to discuss striking the roots on behalf of, of liberty and uh, allowing people to simply be left alone, what are the big policy changes uh, that, that you see as critical to changing this relationship between communities and cops? Well, the most uh, dramatic change uh, getting to the root of the problem is the war on drugs. Um, as David Simon has said in his comments uh, in, the, in the weeks with the Baltimore unrest, uh, we have a dynamic at work here. Uh, young men in the cities are tempted by the money that can be made uh, selling drugs. And uh, the police, for their part, they are charged with waging the drug war. That means going into these neighborhoods and making drug busts. Sometimes they are evaluated by the number of arrests that they make. So until this cycle is changed, we're going to see continual confrontations between police officers and young minority men. Until we end the drug war, uh, those confrontations are going to continue. I would agree. I think the, the war on drugs is probably the most uh, bang for your buck as an advocate of liberty as far as identifying policies we could um, reform to, to put a stop to this. I would also point to, to civil asset forfeiture, uh, which is a, a component. It's a useful tool in the drug war. Uh, but to, quote, uh, to, quote the, to quote the DEA or the IRS. But uh, it, it essentially allows police to simply take property from from people without ever charging them with the crime and especially when this tactic is used uh, in conjunction with stop and frisk and in these uh, poor communities uh, the people lack any kind of recourse to get their property back it just uh, breeds this incessant uh, belief that that the police are predatory that there's uh, antagonism between uh, the people and the communities and the police so and what of the protections that police enjoy uh, when it comes to uh, allegations of misconduct. Sometimes they're uh, given a great deal of time before they have to make statements. Uh, uh, the FOP is usually out front and in 
I can't even recall a case in which the FOP said, yeah, these guys probably did something wrong. That is another reform that needs to be uh, implemented is that in many cases in many jurisdictions, uh, there are special legal protections that apply to the police that don't apply to the rest of us. You mentioned one, uh, instead of being interrogated, instead of them giving a clear statement of what happened in that paddy wagon with Freddie Gray, these officers can just uh, decline to answer questions. Um, now, maybe that's their constitutional right, uh, but should they be able to remain on the force? That is the, the question that needs to be reexamined. If I was a police chief and I wanted to get to the bottom of the Freddie Gray case quickly, I would summon all six officers into my office and say, or maybe one at a time and say, all right, what happened? And anybody who wanted to uh, remain silent and not give an explanation, uh, they would be quickly discharged. Yeah, and you can also see in some departments uh, they have policies or recommended policies uh, in the case of the, the LAPD with their body camera policy. Uh, for instance, allowing police to review any footage from their dash cam or their body camera before they make any statements, uh, actually requiring them to view this uh, footage. So uh, these protections in some cases can amount to uh, police essentially having access to all the evidence against them before they make any kind of statement that can be used against them. Uh, that's a, a, a protection that I think a lot of criminal defendants uh, would love to have, but, but if you're not a police officer, you're, you don't uh, have access to that. What are some of the, some of the other protections that, uh, that police have? I know that like, certain actions that they might take when they're off-duty afford them uh, uh, privileges that you and I don't have. Right. One of their one of the other legal protections is like when they are called before grand juries in some jurisdictions, they have special rules where they are able to bring their own attorney into the grand jury room. Uh, that attorney might be able to make uh, an opening and closing statement and gets to advise his client during the questioning. That is something that uh, ordinary people don't have. And it, it's also worth noting, you mentioned grand juries. Um, prosecutors are the people who are charged with getting indictments from grand juries. Prosecutors are law enforcement agents. They do need to maintain that positive relationship with the police because police are very helpful to, to prosecutors. Is, is there uh, any avenue of reform that could uh, improve the relationship that uh, uh, grand juries have with the community at large in terms of uh, securing indictments when they're deserved? Uh, one one obvious reform would be uh, the appointment of special prosecutors uh, to to present these cases to the grand jury uh, when police officers uh, are accused of crimes. It's it's interesting that in this in the Freddie Gray context, it's actually the police union <laughs> that would like to have an independent prosecutor. Uh, they're making uh, casting aspersions on on Miss Mosby's. Uh, uh, conflicts of interest, supposedly, in this case. But, but yeah, it's a serious problem that when it comes to uh, prosecuting police officers, the people in charge of prosecuting them are people they have friendly and professionally necessary relationships with. And that's the pattern that you find over and over again when you look into these cities is that the prosecutions of police are very rare, um, and then there's usually no connection between like police brutality lawsuits that are brought against officers, uh, you know, there may be a settlement. The, the city may pay $100,000 to a victim of police brutality, 
but then there's no follow-up. There's no going back to the officers who were found culpable by the jury, uh, and time passes, and then you find out that they have been uh, promoted within the department rather than discharged because they're costing taxpayers tens of thousands of dollars. There is a, a pervasive attitude, uh, especially currently, and perhaps some of that uh, is uh, unavoidable that police feel that there is a war on uh, police right now. Well, uh, that is their point of view. They're not used to having uh, so much scrutiny on their everyday tactics and the lack of accountability that is shown when uh, places like the Baltimore Sun expose uh, the brutality lawsuits and the patterns that are involved, the amounts of money that are paid out, the fact that there are secret settlements where the victims can no longer speak to reporters or to academics or to elected officials about what has happened to them. Uh, and then there's no culpability, as I said, to the officers who have been found by judges and juries to have broken the law in some cases. Well, and I, I, I certainly understand the, the sentiment of law enforcement. Uh, like Tim said, this is uh, kind of getting into new ground for law enforcement in America to be subject to this kind of, of scrutiny. But I think it's important to note uh, that in, in general, this is not a situation where people are uh, kind of armchair quarterbacking police in very dangerous situations. You know, we're, we're not talking about uh, when they're trying to arrest murderers or rapists or things like that. Uh, Eric Garner was selling untaxed cigarettes. Uh, Walter Scott uh, had a broken taillight. Uh, Freddie Gray did nothing. He simply ran uh, when the police approached. Uh, so this idea that there's too much scrutiny when uh, unarmed, nonviolent uh, young men end up dead uh, through these police encounters is, is a bit ridiculous. Plus, from our standpoint here at Cato, um, our focus is mainly on uh, the elected policymakers. They're the ones that are ultimately responsible for letting dysfunctional police departments operate year after year and neglecting uh, these wrongheaded tactics that have been used year after year in the minority neighborhoods. So our focus is, yes, making sure that abusive uh, police officers are held accountable, but ultimately it is these policymakers who need to um, step up and do the jobs for which we're paying them, oversee the police department, make sure it is well-functioning and has high standards of ethics and professionalism. Well, and to add to that, uh, it's also the legislatures and policymakers that uh, that write these laws uh, that decide uh, under what circumstances the police are going to enter into this antagonistic interaction uh, with citizens. So the, in defense of the police somewhat, they don't write the law. They're simply doing what they think they're being tasked to do by the legislature. So certainly policymakers are not blameless in this. All right. So uh, you're, ta you're talking about these cases, Eric Garner uh, in, in, in particular, as I recall, selling untaxed cigarettes which uh, ended with his death uh, literally at the hands uh, of, of police. So and Harvey Silverglate, an uh, adjunct here at Cato, talks about how we are all committing, on average, three felonies a day. Is it, it, and are police really, are they arguing for, hey, we've got too many laws to enforce? It doesn't seem like that's an, a, a line of argument uh, police are willing to make. 
No, that is not a line of argument that I, I hear uh, often, and it, it does not come from police or police union officials or, or, or prosecutors. It was interesting in, in New York uh, when the officers were killed, uh, when the NYPD essentially said, we're going to stop uh, minor enforcement uh, actions because we think it's there's a war on police, it's too dangerous. Uh, how little things actually changed. You know, the, the city didn't burn down. It wasn't the end of the world. So, uh, right, there doesn't seem to be any call from law enforcement to say we need to repeal these laws. But there's also this implicit acknowledgement, at least, uh, that everything police do on a daily basis isn't necessary to the salvation of, of society either. Right. Like I was saying earlier, so many of these confrontations between the police and these young minority men, it's not over burglary investigations. It's not over rape investigations. It's so many of them have to do with the police trying to make uh, drug busts uh, and enforce other petty laws for which they're looking for leverage to then get information on drug busts. And until we get at that root problem, uh, unfortunately, these problems are going to fester still more and we'll probably have, you know, more incidents to talk about in the next uh, year or two. Uh, Ed Burns, who's the one of the co-creators of The Wire, along with David Simon, said when he went out to be a cop, one of the first decisions that he had to make every day is what laws am I not going to enforce? And that, that seems a pretty uh, important thing, is particularly if you're concerned about investigating true crimes, that is, crimes that have victims uh, as a police officer, and who's, you know, you're trying to legitimately serve the public. I think that's right. And conservatives wonder, like, well, if we're not enforcing all these laws, won't we see another spike in crime uh, in our cities? And I think Ed Burns makes a good point if that the police should be focusing all of their time and energy and attention on the most serious crimes that everybody is concerned about uh, to get the people who murder uh, off the streets, the people who rape, the people who, um, you know, engage in muggings and that sort of thing, get those people off the streets and make sure that witnesses are protected. That's what is the other horrifying aspect of living in, in the city is, is that uh, the police are unable to protect witnesses who come forward. And then when everybody sees a witness gets killed, um, it just puts the, the residents in a nightmarish situation between gangs and uh, oppressive tactics by the, the local police force. And I, uh, policymakers also thumb the scale when it comes to uh, police having to make this determination of what laws are we going to enforce. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, civil asset forfeiture, whether it's state level or federal level, uh, provides an explicit profit motive to police to engage in certain kinds of, of police behaviors. Uh, and there aren't big forfeiture paydays when it comes to policing murder or rape. Uh, and there aren't a lot of you know, these federal drug grants and federal counterterrorism grants are not out there for policing burglary uh, and rape. So certainly uh, policymakers, both federal and at the state level, could reduce these incentives they're offering to law enforcement to, to distort these priorities. One other thing that we haven't touched on is the announcement by Attorney General Loretta Lynch that the federal government is now going to be investigating the Baltimore Police Department. Uh, a lot of officialdom in Maryland thinks that this is a very good idea. I happen to think it's a it's a mistake because I think the time 
to reform the Baltimore Police Department really isn't going to get any better than it is right now. The entire nation is focused on Baltimore, and the immediate impact of this Department of Justice investigation is to kick the can down the road as their investigators go in and start studying statistics and police reports, and they are going to come up with, I predict, you know, a very critical report on Baltimore, but that's going to come in seven months, 10 months, and then the opportunity for fundamental reform will have unfortunately passed. All right, gentlemen, we're going to revisit this issue down the road, but today we will leave it there. Adam Bates, a policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and Tim Lynch, director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. Thank you guys very much. And uh, if you want to learn more about this, you can visit uh, Cato.org and our website, policemisconduct.net. Willpower is sometimes described as the greatest human strength. New York Times columnist John Tierney at an April Cato Institute event in New York discussed how people can harness their own willpower to achieve more and earn self-esteem. My topic today is called Working Smart, which I like to think is especially well-suited to a Cato audience. because. As a libertarian, one of my favorite bits of social science involves the link between intelligence and political ideology. Uh, you may have heard over the years there have been a lot of studies showing that conservatives tend to be a bit like troglodytes. They're rigid and they're closed-minded and they're intolerant. Um, and of course, there's no reason you know, to doubt these studies because they are done by social scientists in academia who, who are famous famous for their lack of bias and for being open to a wide, wide spectrum of political views. I mean, I know it's true that there are you know, many of them who are Democrats, but, but there are also quite a few who vote with the Green Party. <laughs> now, when these researchers looked at IQ, they reported with some glee that socially conservative Republicans have lower IQs than Democrats. But then, when they looked at the IQ of the average Republican, they were stunned and rather chagrined to find that the average Republican IQ was higher than the average Democratic IQ. Now, how could this be? Well, because the libertarians in the Republican Party were so much smarter than the Democrats <laughs> and everyone else. So I want to congratulate all of you today on your genius, and, and I want to try to make you even smarter and more productive by discussing some scientific strategies from my book, Willpower. Uh, these strategies have been tested not just at the lab, but in the real world. Uh, in, in fact, recently Mark Zuckerberg revealed that he practices one of these strategies every day at Facebook. And I was really glad to hear this because up until that point, the highest profile endorsement for our book had come from another chief executive with a rather different track record, Barack Obama. <laughs> After he read about our work in, the, in that excerpt from the book that was, uh, that's included in your folder, he changed his daily routine at the White House because he wanted to be able to make better decisions. 
Now, I'm not going to try to convince you that he has made all the right decisions since then. Um, if this were a speech about the Obama administration, the title would be Working Stupid. <laughs> but while they're not foolproof strategies, I do think that these things work much better than what you'll find at the self-help racks in the bookstore. And believe me, I know what is on those self-help racks. I have read more bad self-help books than Oprah and Dr. Phil combined. <laughs> Those books were what got me into this field in the first place. Um, it started one night, I was, I was having dinner with my old friend Christopher Buckley, the comic novelist. And we were having a really deep philosophical discussion about the topic that always comes up when serious writers get together, money. <laughs> we, we concluded that we needed more of it. And we were, we were so jealous of the mega sales of self-help books that we wrote one of our own. It was a novel titled, God is My Broker. The subtitle was, A Monk Tycoon Reveals the Seven and a Half Laws of Spiritual and Financial Growth. <laughs> it tells the story of Brother Ty who is an alcoholic who failed on Wall Street, but then he manages to sober up by going to a monastery in upstate New York that makes wine so bad that even he can't drink it. <laughs> and the monastery is going broke because of that awful wine, but Brother Ty saves it thanks to stock tips that he thinks are coming from God. Now, as the money pours in, the monks kind of relax their vow of poverty. You know, they start buying luxury cars. They, they spend a fortune renovating the monastery with the help of a very hip designer from downtown Manhattan. When he gets up there and they ask him what kind of a look he has in mind for the monastery, he says, well, we want it to say poverty, but we don't want it to say cheap. <laughs> So along the way, our monk tycoon discovers the seven and a half laws of spiritual and financial growth, such as money is God's way of saying thanks. And, and God loves the poor, but that doesn't mean you have to fly coach. And, and my favorite law, as long as God knows the truth, it doesn't matter what you tell your customers. <laughs> so. <laughs> now, to write this parody, I went back through the history of self-help books, and I noticed a really strange trend. From Ben Franklin up through the Victorians, the self-help books would stress perseverance and hard work. You know, they would have maxims like, genius is patience. But then, the modern books started offering quick fixes, and they started preaching self-esteem, and, and a feel-good philosophy with a rhyming slogan, believe it, achieve it. Deepak Chopra offered something called the law of least effort. And I'm going to quote it for you verbatim. Ultimately, you come to the state where you do nothing and accomplish everything. Well, I guess it worked for him. I mean, but... <laughs> But to me, it seemed there had been this strange backward evolution, that the Victorian books were smarter than their descendants. And I wasn't sure what to make of this, 
until I started writing a science column for the New York Times, and I met Roy Baumeister, the social psychologist with whom I ended up writing Willpower. Roy had been an early leader in the research into self-esteem, which showed that people with more self-confidence tended to be more successful. But then, Roy realized that the researchers had it backwards. Self-esteem does not lead to success. Rather, success leads to self-esteem. Winning the Nobel Prize will make you feel pretty good about yourself. But feeling good about yourself will not get you to Stockholm. I mean, if it did, Donald Trump would be there every year. <laughs> when Roy looked at dozens of personality traits, he found that only one of them predicted how well a student would do in college. It was not self-esteem. It was self-control. And self-control, it predicted college grades even better than SAT scores or IQ. And it predicted lots of other things, too, as researchers found when they looked at people throughout their lives. I'll give you a quick summary of two decades of research. However you define success, whether it's in your career, in school, in your home life, in your family, it tends to correlate with two qualities. One is intelligence. The other is self-control. And researchers still, they're trying, but they haven't been able to do much about intelligence. But they have discovered how to improve self-control. They have rediscovered the concept of willpower. What is the United States trying to accomplish in Syria following the rise of ISIS and the spread of conflict in the region? U.S. involvement in these conflicts is often sadly both contradictory and counterproductive. Cato Institute Visiting Research Fellow Emma Ashford spoke on the subject in April. So as, as Justin noted right at the start, it's kind of strange to be discussing strategy when we're in the fifth year of a conflict. Um, but this is coming up in large part because the last six to nine months have seen a fundamental shift in the Syrian conflict with the rise of ISIS that drew the U.S. in. We'd been resisting getting involved for a very long time. The White House finally decided that they would get involved in September. Um, and since then, we've been spending about $10 million a day bombing ISIS. Um, this campaign has had some successes, depending on how you define success. Um, we killed about 6,000 Syrian rebels, uh, sorry, not Syrian rebels, ISIS members, um, maybe as many as 8,500. That's about 20 to 30% of ISIS total strength. Um, but how useful this has been is very questionable. Um, so with a few key exceptions, we've really not taken out much of the ISIS leadership. Um, and ISIS appears to be so effective in their PR strategy and recruitment that some sources estimate that ISIS is recruiting people fast enough to offset their losses from the bombing campaign. We may not be making much of, of an impact at all. Um, but more interesting from the point of view of this panel's topic is the fact that almost all of these gains have been in Iraq, not in Syria. Only about a quarter of the casualties that ISIS has suffered have been in Syria. Um, ISIS has suffered almost no territorial losses um, inside Syria. Um, and while we have partners on the ground in Iraq that are helping and that's encouraging some successes there, we don't have that kind of situation in Syria. So while we're seeing some degradation of ISIS within Iraq, 
The same is not true of Syria. Um, and the major problem, as Erika outlined, is that this is a two-front war. There is the war against ISIS, and then there is the Syrian civil war in which the rebels are trying to overthrow Bashar al-Assad. Um, and just in general, um, I think it wouldn't be overkill to say that the Syrian civil war is just a complete mess. There are hundreds of discrete rebel groups. Alliances shift from week to week. If you were to draw a chart of rebel group alliances today, it would probably be out of date by next week, two weeks from now. So this is the environment in which the US is trying to forge some kind of viable strategy to combat ISIS. Current US policy or the current US approach, which includes bombing ISIS and the arming and training of a selection of Syrian rebel groups, ostensibly with the goal of them fighting ISIS, is largely inadequate to solve our strategic goals here, which is the degradation of ISIS, not necessarily the overthrow of the Assad regime. And so our strategy is inadequate for a couple of reasons, and I'd like to go into a little depth um, on these. So the biggest problem in Syria is our allies. Um, chief among them, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, other Gulf states, and to a lesser extent, Turkey. Um, these allies very much contributed to the mess that is Syria today. Um, in their desire to overthrow the Assad regime, some might say desperation to overthrow the Assad regime, um, they sort of indiscriminately funded and armed lots of different rebel groups. Um, sometimes this was purposeful. Qatar has actually funded groups like Jabhat al-Nusra that's pretty extremist. Um, a lot of the times it was very um, unintentional. So these countries funneled arms, they funneled money into Syria. It went to groups that weren't necessarily um, the people they thought they were funding. We ended up with a lot of extremist groups getting arms and those have very much come to the fore in this conflict. This has also been encouraged by the fact that our allies, particularly Saudi Arabia, um, very much funded this in a sectarian way. Um, so they focused on Sunni groups, they focused on groups with Islamist ties. Um, and while that might not necessarily seem like the end of the world, what it did in Syria was reinforce the Assad regime's narrative that this was a sectarian conflict. And it's created kind of a rump state of Syrian loyalists who are loyal to the Assad regime because they're minorities and in large part because they fear what will come after Assad. So the Druze, the Alawites that are still in government controlled regions in Syria, they're obviously terrified of what would happen if ISIS takes over. But they're probably scared of what would happen if a more moderate Islamist group would take over too. The situation does not look good for them. This is part of why the regime maintains some support in the regions it controls. In addition to the sectarian problem, our allies also worked against one another on the ground. This is a problem that's been going on for the last four years. Um, so Qatar, uh, in particular, and Turkey funded groups associated with the Muslim Brotherhood, but the Saudis refused to work with groups that are associated with the Muslim Brotherhood. The Saudis preferred groups with Salafi ties, which Qatar wasn't too happy about. A lot of the times, these groups actually ended up fighting one another rather than fighting the regime. And this has contributed to the general fragmentation of the Syrian opposition, its general move towards extremism, and the fact that at this point, it's very unclear who is fighting who, who is allied with who, and if there is anyone that we could rely upon to be what the White House calls moderate Syrian rebels. So our Middle Eastern allies have succeeded more recently in sort of deconflicting their approach within Syria. Um, 
But even with this, their policies still conflict with US goals, a fact that Erica touched on. So these states see the overthrow of the Assad regime as non-negotiable. It is their top priority, not the fight against ISIS. Um, and a lot of the recent rebel gains that we've seen have come from coordination between these states. So Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey have coordinated on a new alliance, uh, Jaish al-Fateh, or the Army of Conquest. That group has made a lot of progress um, in fighting the regime, particularly in Idlib province. The problem is it's an extremist group. It's made up of about half more moderate Islamist groups and half groups like Ahrar al-Sham or Jabhat al-Nusra, which is a known al-Qaeda affiliate. So even though these groups that are being funded are fighting the Assad regime, they are not people that we really want to end up in charge of Syria. And so I would say the influence of our Middle Eastern allies on the conflict in Syria is in large part undermining our ability to formulate a viable strategy in the region. There are obviously other problems with US strategy towards Syria. Um, and I honestly hesitate to call it strategy because it is really not that well developed. Um, so the US has primarily focusing on ISIS. We really haven't taken a stance on the Assad regime. Every time it seems like somebody in the White House or the Pentagon or the State Department takes a more firm stance forward against the Assad regime, somebody else walks it back. And that has happened half a dozen times. Um, US strategy is largely dependent on bombing raids, on the use of targeted air power. Um, but the problem is that without an on-the-ground presence in Syria, those are only going to be so useful. Um, and there really isn't a viable on-the-ground resource for the US to call on. Um, we appear to have abandoned or lost a, a number of the groups that were involved in the earlier CIA arm and train efforts that started in 2013. The biggest of those groups, Harakat al-Hazm, was basically disbanded in March. That was about 4,000 fighters. They suffered a lot of uh, territorial losses, mostly to al-Nusra, and they eventually disbanded. Many of their fighters have gone on to other groups. That was the core of the initial CIA arm and train efforts. Um, the major rebel groupings that remain in Syria actually have very little in the way of working relationship with the US or even with other Western countries. Um, the Free Syrian Army that used to be the face of the Syrian rebellion are now much diminished in power. It's really doubtful if they actually represent anybody on the ground within Syria. Um, and the main groups are Islamist groups, some of which, particularly the new Army of Conquest, are quite extreme. It's been almost six years since the official end of the Great Recession, but U.S. economic growth has remained stubbornly sluggish. Fears are mounting that growth rates well below the long-term historical average may now be the new normal. Cato scholar Brink Lindsay argues those fears are well-founded. Absent major policy change, U.S. economic performance will likely remain disappointing for some time to come. He spoke at a Cato event in Florida in March. Uh, so my talk today is a, uh, a good news, bad news talk, and uh, I'll start with the bad news because there are social scientists who tell us these days that the number one ingredient of socioeconomic success is the ability to defer gratification. Uh, and I think this is a pretty successful crowd, so you're all good with this, so I'm going to bum you out at the beginning and then hopefully cheer you up a little bit at the end. <clears throat> all right, the bad news. Uh, the bad news is... Uh, 
we keep looking every quarter for signs of green shoots in the economy, uh, for signs that, that finally the economy is getting traction and, and revving up again. Um, it's been uh, it's coming up on six years now from the official end of the Great Recession, and still we're in this, uh, this game of a real robust recovery is right around the corner. Uh, my bad news is uh, that very likely uh, this slow, sluggish growth is the new normal for some time to come. All the major uh, uh, forecasts of long-term economic growth over the next 10 to 20 years uh, are now giving this warning signal. Just for context, as far back as we have economic statistics, uh, the growth rate of the overall U.S. economy over the long term has been remarkably consistent at 2% growth in real or inflation-adjusted gross domestic product per person. So GDP per capita adjusted for inflation has grown about 2% a year on average from 1870 to 2010. Um, and if you look at the, the chart of the growth rate, you'll see squiggles, uh, and those squiggles are the macroeconomic booms and busts that are, make our headlines and, uh, and, uh, and that we uh, obsess over. But over the long sweep of history, there is this remarkable steadiness of a 2% growth rate. Uh, but now, uh, the leading uh, forecasts for economic growth uh, are showing over the next 10 to 20 years, a growth rate in GDP per capita of between one and one and a half percent. So what does that mean? One and a half, two. Uh. To get an idea for what it means uh, over a longer term, uh, first you have to take into account the miracle of compound interest, that uh, small differences in, in rates of growth uh, at the front end can lead to gigantic differences in, uh, uh, in growth uh, on the back end. Uh, there is a rule of 70 uh, if you uh, take 70 and divide it by the growth rate, uh, you'll get how many years it takes for the economy to double. Uh, so at a 2% growth rate, the economy doubles every 35 years. At a 1% growth rate, it doubles uh, every 70 years. So in other words, the stakes here are, uh, for a person born today, uh, is the economy going to double once over their life or twice? And uh, those stakes are, are really huge. So why uh, this pessimism about the long-term growth rate? It's not policy-related. Uh, that's another reason to be depressed, but, uh, but the real deep thing driving down uh, growth forecasts is demographics. In particular, uh, uh, we've had an ongoing decline in the hours worked per capita. Uh, you can think of economic output GDP as two things, uh, hours worked per capita times output per hour uh, equals output per capita. So if hours worked per capita is falling, then output is going to fall unless output per worker increases. So you have to have productivity growth uh, to compensate for the falling uh, hours worked in order just to keep uh, the economy from shrinking. To get high growth rates, you will need extremely robust productivity growth to compensate for uh, this shrinking hours per capita. From the 1960s till about 2000, we had steadily rising hours worked per capita due to the confluence of women entering the workforce and the baby boom. The uh, female labor force participation rate peaked uh, in the late 90s, has been falling since then. Men's uh, labor force participation rate, the percentage of men in the workforce, has been in gentle decline for decades for good reasons, for spending longer time in school and for longer periods of retirement. Uh, but in general, uh, the mobilization of the workforce uh, is, has been unwinding. 
Uh, and part of that is progress, part of that is aging. Uh, some of it is bad policies that are discouraging people from staying in the workforce. Uh, but uh, just on demographic basis alone, uh, we are uh, likely to be running into an economic growth headwind, uh, whereas throughout the 20th century, we benefited from this huge one-off change of moving women from working in the home uh, for unpaid work to moving out into the marketplace uh, and making GDP for a living. There's, there's no easier way to get uh, higher GDP growth than to get a higher and higher percentage of people making GDP for a living. That process has stopped, it has gone into reverse, uh, and unless we have productivity growth at the highest levels uh, ever recorded uh, in the best decades of the 20th century, uh, we're gonna have slower growth than uh, our long-term average. Productivity growth is very volatile and incredibly totally unpredictable. So it could be there's going to be a deus ex machina and next month or next year we'll see that uh, that, uh, that uh, internet uh, fueled uh, productivity growth has come to our rescue and that we will have normal growth rates, but it doesn't look like that's the case. So that's the bad news. The good news is that uh, history shows uh, an inverse relationship between the external conditions for growth on the one hand and the quality of economic policy making on the other. So we libertarians, free market types, uh, all of us know very well uh, not to expect optimal policy making out of democracies. There's all kinds of reasons uh, why, how majoritarian democracies can go off the rails and go in the wrong direction. Rational ignorance by the voters. They don't know what makes them rich. Uh, they don't have time to find out, so they have dumb ideas. And uh, you have the problem of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. Special interest lobbies uh, have great incentives uh, to get uh, special gains from Washington that may slow down the overall growth machine, whereas the majority that pays a little bit uh, for these exactions isn't motivated uh, to lobby back. So you have lobbying mismatches. So there's all kinds of reasons uh, <clears throat> grouped under the, uh, the title of public choice economics for us to think uh, that democracy stink at economic policy making. Uh, but there has to be some floor on it because we're all growing, right? Every, uh, there are very, very few countries. There were countries in sub-Saharan Africa during the 80s and 90s that were having shrinking GDP per capita, but pretty much every country grows, which means there is some floor below which uh, economic policy making won't go off the rails. Uh, and that is, I think, the universal appeal of prosperity and for a, the prospect of a better life for your children. So in a democracy, when economic performance starts to deteriorate, uh, people get upset, and uh, the government's poll rankings, uh, poll ratings start to fall, the opposition party's poll ratings start to rise, there starts to be political momentum for a plan B. Now that plan B could be worse than the status quo, of course, that's a problem, we saw that in the 1930s. But in general, uh, since around 1970, the overwhelming trend of worldwide economic policy has been to move uh, in a pro-market direction, uh, more competition, uh, more entrepreneurship, less government ownership, uh, less government control of prices, and who can enter the market. Since 2001, the Federal Bureau of Investigation has led a vigorous hunt for domestic terrorists. The results are mixed. Several attacks have occurred, though not with the apocalyptic results officials predicted. Authorities have stopped other domestic terrorists and arguably manufactured more. 
Noreen Shaw is the Director of Security and Human Rights at Amnesty USA. At the Cato Institute in April, she expressed her concerns about how the FBI does its job. So for Amnesty International, ISIS, I should say, just start out by saying, is an incredibly uh, major concern. ISIS commits human rights atrocities. We recently issued a report about ISIS subjecting hundreds and possibly thousands of women to sexual slavery and rape, uh, forced marriages, horrible atrocities. The UN has issued a report saying that ISIS is burying children alive and crucifying them, uh, killing scores of people in Iraq and Syria. ISIS is a serious concern from a human rights perspective, as well as from a perspective, of course, of US national security. So justice, we want justice too. We want effective counterterrorism measures to stop people from taking people's rights to life, their right to freedom of expression all over the world. All of these things are implicated by terrorism. But this is an illusion of justice. This is an illusion of effective counterterrorism because in many of the cases that we examined closely in the Human Rights Watch report, what was happening was that the US government was identifying individuals who appeared to be susceptible to becoming would-be informants. And what the US government's intention here is a little bit unclear. We should start with what we know, and then we should identify what we don't know. So here's what we know. The FBI reorganized after 9-11. Counterterrorism became its chief priority. It, in fact, was blamed in some ways for 9-11 for intelligence failures. The FBI's budget increases hugely. It goes from about $3 billion now to $8.5 billion, I believe. And in Explaining its budget, it goes from in, in 2001, when it's trying to explain why it wants $3.5 billion, it's saying oh, there's a drug war, transnational uh, threats are incredibly complex, uh, we need to do more to stop drug trafficking, and that's its, its reason for existence in 2001 for the FBI. Now its reason for existence is counterterrorism. And so, for instance, in uh, the director of the FBI's testimony before Congress this year, uh, asking for $8.4 billion, uh, the director says, the threat of terrorism is incredibly complex. Homegrown violent extremism uh, is something that the FBI needs more money to tackle. The new face of terrorism is everywhere. And the potential population of would-be attackers is not easily knowable. So now the FBI is telling a story about what's happening inside the United States, how we have to counter terrorism. Terrorism could happen anywhere. The face of a terrorist could be anyone. It could look like James Cromedy. It could look like me. It could even look like you guys. And when you have that kind of threat, that threat that is everywhere, and you've got an agency that has reorganized and, and become uh, dependent upon that narrative of threat for its own livelihood, right, for its own budget, that's where you spell trouble, right? That's where you get to the FBI, individual FBI agents making choices about how to handle particular cases, how to target individuals, and who to target. So when I uh, co-wrote the report with Human Rights Watch, uh, we looked at 27 cases in depth, and we tried to look at the kinds of individuals who are being targeted in these cases. I should say that overall, there have been about 500 terrorism prosecutions since 9-11. Uh, multiple studies have found that about 50% of those cases involve informants. We went through all those cases, and what we identified was that about 30% of those cases involved informants playing an incredibly active role, an aggressive role, where they were creating, helping to create and manufacture the underlying plot. So it's not to say that all of the terrorism indictments that we see are ones where informants are committing abuses or, or manipulating individuals or acting aggressively, but a large, a significant proportion of them are. So what happens in these cases? Who are the individuals? Well, obviously, there are individuals like those in the Newburgh Sting film who want money. There are also individuals who often have mental illness. There's a real question as to whether those individuals, if left to their own devices, could have actually 
shown the initiative and the intelligence and creativity to conduct any kind of terrorist attack. But there's other kinds of cases too. There's, there's cases of people who are smart, who get lured into these uh, entrapment type situations. I interviewed some of the family members, I interviewed some of the individuals who are uh, the defendants in these cases. And what became clear to me was that a lot of the individuals who get caught up in these cases are people who simply want to boast. They're people who want a new friend. They're very lonely individuals. They're desperate for someone to think that they're smart or creative or interesting or funny. They lie about who they are. Uh, there's a lot of bravado involved in these cases. Sometimes they're old men, they're taxi drivers who just want somebody to listen to them and think that they're special. A lot of the times they're 18 and 19 year old kids who don't have any friends at school, who aren't really part of a social structure within school. And so they're online looking for friends, looking for something to grab onto. Uh, they become the terrorist, terrorist sympathizers. And for the FBI, uh, those kinds of individuals are people who could be recruited by ISIS or Al-Qaeda or other armed groups. So that's the question, really. What do we do? Let's assume that ISIS really is recruiting people aggressively inside the United States. And let's assume that the numbers are correct about ISIS, that um, as the Director of National Intelligence said in February 2015, about 3,400 citizens from Western countries have gone to join ISIS. That's out of about uh, 20,000 total people who have gone to join ISIS. Uh, from outside of the region, making ISIS about 31,000 people strong in terms of their armed forces. So 3,400 of them being from Western countries, including the United States, but more uh, European countries. So let's assume that the US government, that the FBI is right, that there are people who are actively trying to recruit young men and women in this country. How should the FBI be responding? Is it correct for the FBI to respond by using informants? If they are going to use informants, what are the ways in which they should be using them and shouldn't be using them? Access to cheap, dependable energy is something Americans take for granted. But for much of the world, there's no guarantee that energy sources persist, and that can, in turn, change the fortunes of millions of people on Earth. Johan Norberg, at an April Cato Institute event in New York, discussed the true importance of energy for global development. The world's biggest blackout in history, the biggest power cut took place on July 31st, 2012 in India. A total of 32 gigawatts of generating capacity went offline and 620 million people lost power at the same time. I was in India briefly afterwards and asked people about it. And they, what was it like? Tell me. 620 million people, what, what's it like? And they told me, what power cut? Which blackout? What are you talking about? We didn't notice anything. Because if power is so unreliable, almost non-existent, power comes and goes. You know that you can't make any long-term decisions. You know you can't have big, important, costly machines running all the time if you don't have that power supply. So you don't. So when it's gone, you barely notice it. So we take it for granted in the rich world nowadays. But most people around the world can't do that. Um, you know, most people think it's, it's just the flick of a switch. They have no idea where it comes from. A Swedish woman was recently asked by a Swedish newspaper about, are you afraid of power cuts and blackouts? And she said, no, no, not at all. You see, I, I'm not that electricity dependent because I live and work in the city. <laughs> this is 
It's something in the rural area, but here I don't need that much electricity because it seems to, it, it's like magic. It's there all, all the time. We take it for granted, but it is the edifice of modern society. Having more power than you have personally, physically, is what makes the whole difference between, between what we used to be and what we are now. And just to give you one brief example, there's a Swedish professor of international health, Hans Rosling, who is an, a leftist of the old school who still believed in progress and technology. Recently, he gave a lecture and talked to the audience about when he was four years old and he saw his mother load a washing machine for the first time in her life. And he said, and I'm quoting, that was a great day for my mother. My mother and father had been saving money for years to be able to buy that machine. And the first day it was going to use. Even be, grandma was invited to see the machine. And grandma was even more excited. Throughout her life, she had been heating water with firewood, and she had hand-washed laundry for seven children. And now she was going to watch electricity do the work instead. So she pulled up a chair and watched the machine at work. My mother explained the magic with this machine. She said, now, Hans, we have loaded the laundry. The machine will make the work, and now we can go to the library. Because that's the magic of it. You put laundry into the machine, and what do you get out of it? You get books out of the machine, children's books. And mother got time to read for me. And she got also got books for herself. She managed to study English and learn that as a foreign language. And she read so many novels. And what we said, my mother and me, was, thank you, industrialization. Thank you, steel mill. Thank you, power station. And thank you, chemical processing industry that gave us time to read books. End of quote. And that's our story as well. Just recently, this has happened and changed the world. We start off this documentary by having a small tale of two cities, two different cities. Uh, I visited a poor, small village in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco, close to the Saharan Desert, where, where I met a delightful family with an important family in the village that lived close to nature and close to one another. And it looked like an enviable, nice, good life. But when I talked to the father about his life, he gave me a list of things that made his life unbearably hard. He said, I would want a simple water pump just to get access to decent water, just so that we could get a shower and wash off this sand once in a while. A possibility to irrigate the crops and get the agriculture here going. A refrigerator so that we could store the food. Electric lights so the kids could do the homework in the evening. A phone to stay in touch with others including my eldest son, who has left for university. The demands could all be summarized in one wish, for the electric cables to finally make it all the way to their village. Around the world, 1.2 billion people lack access to electricity. 2.8 million people have to warm their house and cook their food with an open fire that create respiratory diseases and illnesses that kills Something like half a million people annually in Africa alone, half of them children. Having access to modern energy sources is a matter of life and death. It's not just about convenience. Electricity makes hospitals functions, powers, agriculture, machines, the economy, communication, and transport. The difference it makes can be seen in the statistics. Villages in Bangladesh at the, that are electrified with the same pattern of illnesses and the same kind of economy as other villages without electricity, have infant mortality rates that are 35% lower. A World Bank study concluded that for every million children born around the world, 8,000 children die because of a lack of electricity. Not far 
from the first village of Isidanistar lies the city of Tamayust, where they have light in the bathroom, they have refrigerators, they have water pumps, they could cook meals on a gas stove, they had cell phones and computers. Eid Brahim, the village imam in Tamayust, told me that electricity was not just about these conveniences. It has brought happiness to the village. And I quote, when we got electricity, it was like a big party in the village. People were happy with lights in the house. They were happy to watch television. They were happy with street lights, have refrigerators and appliances. Electricity brought everyone in the village so much happiness, end of quote. And more people are looking for that around the world. They want and they need more access to it. It'll be costly get, to get power to the people around the world. And one of those costs are environmental. But we have to ask ourselves, doesn't the world's poor deserve the same kind of life-changing benefits and technologies that power have brought to the developed world? And in the end, it really doesn't matter what we think because they are getting it anyway. They are fed up with living the kind of life that they did and they are going to need it. And that's why we need better energy sources, new energy sources that will power more and that will be greener in the future. How do we get that? That's another thing that we're looking into in this documentary and in the accompanying book. Because there's always this temptation, you know about it, to try and solve problems with a top-down solution, just finding the best solution and scaling it up and subsidizing it and making it happen everywhere at the same time. It's a natural instinct, but it's a very dangerous designer instinct, which really relates to what David said about how people think that everything that's big has got to have a big course, something that the government does top down for everybody. Because the problem is when you give those privileges, those public funds to particular alternatives, you don't know that you give it to the right ones. You do know that you create problems for the alternatives that could have been there instead. What you do is that you take the decisions away from the millions of researchers, entrepreneurs, and consumers who are constantly experimenting with different alternatives and innovations and put it into the hands of a few bureaucrats and politicians and special interest groups. While that is good for us, I can't imagine it's a good way for the government to use taxpayers' money, as one of the investors in the now-defunct California solar company, Solyndra, put it when they got a very favorable government loan in 2009. It also changes the incentives and makes the companies more interested in appearance and in making the politicians happy. Trying to pick winners like that has often stuck us with the wrong solution at the cost of alternative solutions. Government is a crappy venture capitalist, even in energy. As Lawrence Summers put it, then Obama's chief um, economic advisor put it in relation to the Solyndra guarantee. And the history of modern energy policy is littered with government failures like that. They always think they have the right new idea that will change everything. In the 1950s, it was nuclear power. President Eisenhower told everyone around the world to begin to develop um, nuclear for, for a peaceful use, which led to a top-down, premature rollout of a particular technology that was incredibly costly and brought with it some technological problems that caused new hazards. Rather than doing it step-by-step, step, trial and error, according to the steps that entrepreneurs, businesses, consumers, and researchers would have done. Even before the Harrisburg disaster, there was a huge backlash against uh, nuclear power. Forbes called it the largest managerial disaster in business history. Between 1978 and 1985, utilities canceled 75 nuclear plants because they were too expensive. 
because they didn't wait for the market. And President Bush, George W. Bush did the same thing with corn ethanol, saying that now we have the future, now we know what's gonna happen. It's a new ethanol era, it's coming and government can help. More than $20 billion in subsidies later and, the, and, and uh, the requirement to blend ethanol into petrol later, we've realized that it was incredibly costly and it wasn't the future. And we always wasted as much energy producing and transporting the corn ethanol than as we saved when using it, when you do a life cycle analysis. Today, the next big idea is wind and solar. And that's what we're trying to expand everywhere. That's what we're subsidizing. Uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel in Germany sounded just like Eisenhower did, just like Bush did, saying that now this is a new era of solar and wind, and we can be, take the first steps, and we can give it a push. The result wasn't that it made the country stronger and richer, and you've seen part of that story here. Instead, it was incredibly costly. In 2013, the government subsidies cost Germans $26 billion to generate electricity with a market price of three million dollars. That's how costly it is. It wouldn't cost the average household more than an ice cream, as the energy minister put it. Now it costs the average household $350 a year. And the high energy prices are now 50% higher than in the rest of Europe. And mind you, they're quite high there as well. Electricity is becoming a luxury good in Germany, as Der Spiegel declared it recently. And we didn't get the national champions in Germany. Instead, we got the failed companies, more subsidies and tariffs against the more efficient competitors from other places. Because it just doesn't generate enough electricity. Just to compensate for the annual increase in CO2 emissions from China's coal, you would have to build 140 huge wind turbines every week just to compensate for the increase. So if you're trying to compensate for all of it and for our own, uh, emissions, well, that would, we would run out of land and shallow seabeds to put those turbines onto, and we would definitely run out of money. Is it a cheap price to pay for saving the world, for dealing with pollution and, and carbon dioxide, as they now put it? Well, the problem is that it hasn't had that result either, as you saw Dieter Helm, the energy expert, saying in one of the interviews. The sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. You need some backup capacity. And without nuclear, without fracking and natural gas, that's coal. So they're firing up new coal plants all the time. And in contrast to the United States and to the rest of Europe, Germany is now increasing its CO2 emissions despite the green transition that was supposed to deal with that, the incredibly costly energy transition, the mother of all unintended consequences, I would say. But unfortunately, the fact that they fail again and again doesn't stop them from trying again. They will find something new that they know will give them new opportunities, new photo opportunities, and new ideas. But the alternative is not to rely on them to find out the next step. The alternative is to rely on the millions of scientists and entrepreneurs who are experimenting with other ideas and in constantly finding new ways of making the old versions even better. Fracking is an example of that, hydraulic fracking to get into the shale and get the ga natural gas and, and now the oil out of it as well. That was a crazy idea. George Mitchell, the son of a very poor immigrant from Greece who used to tend goats, he had this crazy idea that he could open the shale. And for decades, he experimenting with drilling holes in the shale between Dallas and Fort Worth and came up with nothing. 
and people felt sorry for him and thought he was crazy. But step by step, he refined the technologies, used the best ideas, and suddenly one day it worked out and it changed the world. And it has lowered, reduced energy prices, and it has reduced CO2 emissions as well. This is not just the story of a brilliant entrepreneur who changes the world because he was a genius. It's also a story about the ecosystem that is the market. And this is the biggest difference between, um, between the planned economy, between regulation and, and the market. Just look at the generations of innovation and entrepreneurship on which Mitchell's discovery depended. The slick water mixture that he used to open the shale was used by Union Pacific Resources in Texas, East Texas long before Mitchell used it. Hydraulic fracturing was pioneered in the 1940s of some of the ancestors of, uh, uh, of Standard Land Oil and Gas Corporation, a spin-off of, of Standard Oil. And Halliburton created the first commercial wells. Horizontal drilling has a similarly complex background dependent on a long series of innovations by entrepreneurs going back to the 30s. And landing survey tools, rotary steerable systems, and downhole motors and precision tools, all those things was necessary. When Mitchell started drilling, he could rely on everyday use of an entire ecosystem of industries, 6,000 independent oil and gas companies, and a huge service system that is there and they're constantly refining their methods and their technologies to make them as efficient as possible. When you're trying to change the system top down from the government side, you can't rely on that. That doesn't happen. You have to build that structure as well. You have to create those artificial incentives as well. And if something goes wrong, you distort the incentives and you're off completely, even if you have the right idea for the energy future. That ecosystem, the fact that we have millions of people constantly improving everything because of their own self-interest, that is what makes it possible for the brilliant entrepreneurs to come up with the next invention and the next solution to the, this solution. And as we know, natural gas is changing the world. It's clean, it emits much less CO2 than coal, etc., etc. Because of this development, uh, the mother of all ironies, in 2012, the United States became the first big international indu industrial economy to reach the United Nations' original Kyoto Protocol on reducing CO2 emissions, despite the fact that the United States never ratified it, never followed it. Germany, that pushed for it constantly, broke it again and again, and it cost them a big buck. So it seems to me, in conclusion, that the world needs fewer top-down planners and more crazy dreamers like George Mitchell, more of the ecosystem that is the market, more people who are venturing into new territory and exploring strange new ideas. We need more people who experiment with new technologies and solutions. And if they stray far off the consensus, that's only to be welcomed, because that's the only thing that will give us new knowledge and new results, and some of them failures, and that's an important knowledge as well. I don't know what comes next. It could be the next generation of nuclear power. It could be new material for solar technology. It could be cleaner gas or some version of fossil fuels. It could be better material for solar power, solar power in space where the sun always shines, or something else. I have no idea, and to be frank, neither do you and neither do our politicians, our chancellors, our, our presidents. So why don't we just stop doing that and at last give power to the people in, in a double meaning, giving them the power to explore those new opportunities as well. And this is why I am hopeful, because as the spread of electricity makes more people connected, 
more people around the world learn the latest knowledge. They learn what's going on, they get the tool to participate. Almost three billion people around the world now have access to the internet. Two of million, billion of them have it in their own pockets. The Chinese, who were completely shut off from all knowledge just a couple of decades ago, bought 100 million smartphones in only the last three uh, quarters. And with just one Google search, they use more computing power than the whole Apollo project used in the 11-year mission of putting a man on the moon. And right now, this month, a 12-year-old girl in Morocco gets access to electricity for the first time. She takes her first steps online when she connects that computer to the rest of the world. And she's about to enter that global world. She has access to the sum of mankind's knowledge, and she can add her own ingenuity to it. Our challenges are huge, and it will be problematic. But we also have more eyeballs than ever looking at our problems. We have more brains now constantly trying to figure out where to go next. The problem that everybody is talking about, that everybody is so concerned about, the problem that gives the energy to the whole environmental movement, the problem that we are using more energy around the world is also the solution to the problem. Our thirst for energy gives more people the ability to solve our problems. Because we don't know, but there's power in numbers, and the more people that are connected, the more problems will be solved. And that's why I'm hopeful that we will see power to the people in the future. Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid alone account for 48% of federal spending today, a portion that will grow larger in the future and increase more rapidly with the government's newest entitlement program, Obamacare. The simple truth is that there is no way to address America's debt problem without reforming entitlements. In his new book, Going for Broke, Cato Institute senior fellow Michael Tanner provides a critical, in-depth analysis of these entitlement programs and lays out much-needed solutions for real reform. You can get your copy of Going for Broke at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.